And uh, we're back to, um, you know, Ezekiel and, and the exiles. But in this chapter, we're going to learn that Jerusalem has fallen to Babylon. And that's kind of a whole new thing. Because, I mean, Ezekiel 1 to 24 was Ezekiel warning them and, and Ezekiel uh, prophesying the judgment that was coming on Jerusalem. Now that it comes, he kind of shifts to a new phase of his ministry as he thinks more about the blessings God will give them after the purifying judgment, after the exile in Babylon, and ultimately culminating in the Messiah. So it's almost like God recommissions Ezekiel. He kind of gives him a new start with this kind of new focus for what he's going to be doing. So uh, chapter 33, verses 1 to 9. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying... Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon a land, if the people of the land take a man of their territory and set him for their watchman, if when he sees the sword come upon the land, he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whosoever hears the sound of the trumpet and takes not the warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, and did not take the warning, his blood will be upon him. But he that takes the warning shall deliver his soul. But if the watchman sees the sword come, and does not blow the trumpet, and the people will not be warned, if the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have sent you a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore you shall hear the word at my mouth, and warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, if you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that the wicked man will die in his iniquity, his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, and he does not turn from his way, he dies in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. You know, we do quite a bit with warnings, in our country, in our society. Um, think about response to warnings about, say, natural disasters. Um, you know, when there's a warning about a hurricane or a, a big snow. I mean, <laughs> think about the raid on the grocery stores when uh, there's a blizzard coming or something like that. You know, and, uh, you know, we, we, we're pretty responsive, we're pretty uh, thoughtful about that. You know, uh, you know, if there's a warning about some, uh, you know, serial killer on the loose or something like that. I mean, we, we're, we're responsive. We understand that, that we need warnings and, and we want to, we want to, uh, take heed to them. Well, he says, son of man, you know, if I bring a sword upon the land and the people take a, a person to be a watchman and he sees the sword, he blows the trumpet, he warns the people, then He's done his job. It's up to the people to respond to the warning. And if they don't, they can only blame themselves. When the, when the watchman issues the warning, you think about being on the wall and seeing the, the enemy advance, that's why you use that kind of a watchman. And he, he blows the trumpet, he, he sounds the call. If the people don't listen, they can't blame the watchman. The, the warning was issued. <laughs> It was it was done properly, so it's up to it's, it's his responsibility. Now, if the watchman, verse six, sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, the people are not warned. Then he has a responsibility. You know, he has a responsibility 
to do his mission of issuing the warning. You know, he can influence the lives of others. He can keep them from perishing because if he had warned them, they could have taken uh, uh, measures to, to prepare. It's, it's, it's terrifying to think about the responsibility we have in the lives of others. Someone probably taught the gospel to you or to one of your ancestors and helped them come to the Lord or helped you come to the Lord. What if they had? You know, all of us ultimately uh, having a, a debt to a watchman to, a, to a, a brother, a sister, that warned and that evangelized and that proclaimed Christ. And, and, and if they hadn't. And then you just think about, we have been given the gospel. We have the, the word that warns. What if we don't warn? What if we don't tell others about the Lord? Now he says to Ezekiel in verse 7, Now as for you, son of man... In verses 1 to 6, he's kind of saying, theoretically. You know, if the watchman is appointed, it was kind of his responsibility. He says, Son of man, I've appointed you as a watchman for the house of Israel. So you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you lie, and you don't warn him, the wicked man will die in his iniquity, but his blood I'll require from your hands. But if you warn him, then if he doesn't respond, it's his fault. So, you know, he says, here's what a watchman's job is. And Ezekiel, you're the watchman. You're the one I've commissioned to do that. There is just more urgency and more responsibility to proclaim Christ and to warn that I think we've taken seriously in general. I, I'm just, as I, as I look at the New Testament, I see much more of a focus on spreading the word. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He sent the apostles out to preach the gospel to every creature, preach to all the nations of the world, and they were to teach others so that they could teach others also. I mean, that was, that was God's plan. That was the pattern. And we have more people perhaps living in the world than have ever lived in the world. There are so many people who need to hear the gospel. We, it's not our responsibility to make the one who hears the warning respond. When we issue the warning, when we, we proclaim Christ, then it's up to them, and they may not listen. You've tried to teach some people who rejected, who refused, who stopped their ears up. That's their responsibility. It's my responsibility to tell the message that I know, to give the warning that God has given. So we really need to take that seriously and think more about our responsibility in that. Comments and questions? Yeah. So I'm just really struck by Paul's example when he says farewell to the Ephesian elders before he goes to Jerusalem and he tells them, like, I am innocent of the blood of all because I did not shrink back from the whole truth. And I just think, like, I look back on situations in my life, and can I say that about how I acted in that interaction? And am I innocent because I didn't shrink back, or have I have I shrunk back from, from those situations, and, and therefore, 
you know, guilty of not seeing the whole system. Yes. Uh, that's a sobering thought, and uh, you know, I think what Paul said fits very well with this. The, if he hadn't said all that God had taught, then he would have been responsible for their not knowing and not acting. Steve? When Paul talks about, therefore knowing the care of the Lord, we persuade all men. When you're reading Ezekiel, all these nations are going to go down to the grave in kind of horrible ways. That should, again, speak to our hearts as well. Amen. <clears throat> Scott? I just growing up and then also just like still today, like when you don't talk about Jesus like verbally to people you know that are close to you, whether they're Christians or non-Christians, you get in this like space where you feel like you just like look at the news, you're like look at like it's a distant thing from you and you don't really like bind it to yourself. So like when you talk about it, it's really awkward. But like when you actually talk about Jesus more and just like naturally like believe it. Um, then it's actually going to come across to people as genuine, and then you can not only let it be genuine, but then learn how to do it properly for different people, because they're not all going to learn the same way. Yes, and uh, becoming all things to all men is appropriate, but ultimately, the responsibility is on the hearer. We, we teach as well as we can teach. We warn because we care, and we love people, and we love the Lord, but Ultimately, the focus is on when we've issued the warning, it's their responsibility to listen. David. Speak a little bit about the faithfulness of your watching. Sure, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, it would be appropriate for a watchman who's issuing the warning to live like he. Uh, had heard the warning himself. I mean, take heed to yourselves and to those who hear you, First Timothy 4.16. So it's certainly uh, going to give your message more credibility if you live it. And if you don't believe it yourself, why would anybody else? Peterson? I think the idea of issuing the warning to the watcher, to the watcher, to the people, is the story of the Good Samaritan. I've never been on the Jerusalem-Jericho road or seen somebody who's actually been beaten up alongside the road. But we can relate to, say, an accident. If you saw an accident happen and uh, you realize that somebody was potentially injured, would you feel any sense of responsibility to do something about that? I think most of us would. I mean, maybe you'd call 911. Maybe you'd stop and, and check on the person. Maybe you'd try to get out of the car. I bet you that a good number of people here, if the car burst into flames, would risk their life to try to get the person out of the car, especially if you saw the accident happen. 
even if you had no idea who the person was. We have some compassion. We feel some sense of responsibility. We think about what if that were us. But, I mean, it's bad to burn up in a burning car, but that's a lot less serious than losing our soul. You know, it's like we see it when it comes to physical things. We have a hard time seeing the urgency of the warning about something a whole lot more important. Tying with that, I don't think we go out and seek that burning car. You know, if we saw it, if we happened to stumble upon it, then then we would probably more than likely do something. But we're not diligently seeking those burning, flaming cars on the interstate. We're going to our destination. We're taking care of the things that we need to do, which oftentimes are good and right. But we need to be more vigilant. I think the second thing that keeps coming to my mind is we're inundated with those warnings that you mentioned. Right, we, we, we have no idea why the flag's at half-staff half the time. It's just always at half-staff. The tornado sirens go off if there's a, a slight wind. Whatever it is, we're constantly inundated. My, my office building, the fire alarm goes off, and they sound it and say, don't worry, it's just a test. We don't think and take warnings seriously, even though we know what they are. We wait for the disaster to happen. We, we need to be warning people that a disaster is coming, even if it's noisy, even if everybody else we think is taking care of it, we personally need to be warning people that that disaster is coming. Amen. Yeah. John? Interesting that what he's doing here is going back to the almost identical thing of chapter 3. Um, yes. But, but the mess, and, and that made sense, because everything that followed in chapter 3 to 24 was about warning the wicked and everything. You really don't see a whole lot of warnings after this. It's more of a message of hope. Is, is he just pulling this in and just saying, you know, I want you to preach the whole thing, uh, warnings and the hope of... I think so. I think this is an appropriate thing for kind of a renewal of the commission. Things have changed now that Jerusalem's falling. He's not really preaching that, but he's still preaching a message that people need to hear. It is a message of warning to some extent. It's also a message of hope. But the message of hope is an exhortational message for them to prepare themselves to receive that. So I think I think he's just kind of renewing this mission that includes warning. Yes, uh, Matthew. I was thinking a lot about uh, chapter 22, verse 30, where he says he's looking for someone to stand in the gap so he doesn't destroy it. We all have a duty. So... It's up to us if we're willing to stand in the gap. And Amen. Yeah, good, good concept. I like that uh, imagery, Joe. I agree with the comparison between 3 and 33 and 18 and 33. Uh, I wonder if this isn't more of a direct uh, conclusion to 25 to 32, because in chapter 33 and verse uh, 2, he says, When I bring the sword upon the land. And then we've just been talking a lot about in bringing a sword against these nations. Okay, that's an interesting idea. If this could uh, connect up with what you just said, well, I haven't thought about that, but that makes sense. Brian, or Sid? Yeah, I, I think that evangelistic applications are really good, but in Ezekiel's immediate situation, this may be more Galatians 6.1 than it is Matthew 28. Okay. About restoring his brethren as opposed to... Which is also a area of warning we need to be doing. Yeah, good point, good thoughts. Alright, let's look at this next section then, 10 to 20. 
Now as for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you have spoken, saying, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we are rotting away in them. How then can we survive? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? And you, son of man, say to your fellow citizens, The righteousness of a righteous man will not deliver him in the day of his transgression. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he will not stumble because of it in the day when he turns from his wickedness. Whereas a righteous man will not be able to live by his righteousness on the day when he commits sin. When I say to the righteous, he will surely live, and he so trusts in his righteousness that he commits iniquity, none of his righteous deeds will be remembered. But in that same iniquity of his, which he has committed, he will die. But when I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and he turns from his sin and practices justice and righteousness, if a wicked man restores a pledge, pays back what he's taken by robbery, walks by the statutes, which ensure life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of his sins that he has committed will be remembered against him. He has practiced justice and righteousness, he shall surely live. Yet your fellow citizens say, the way of the Lord is not right, when it is their own way that is not right. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, then he shall die in it. But when the wicked turn, turns from his wickedness and practices justice and righteousness, he will live by them. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not right. O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways. So, the Israelites are feeling demoralized by the burden of their sin, uh, feeling like, how could they survive? What hope in the future could there be for them? Sometimes we ignore warnings and we're oblivious to our sins. Sometimes as God brings the consequences and the punishment upon us, then we feel overwhelmed and, and hopeless. And, and Ezekiel's dealing with that, the Lord through Ezekiel. And, and the Lord says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Repent, turn back and live. The point is that, that God allows us, he encourages us to repent and he'll receive us back. We're not so far gone that our repentance wouldn't bring the Lord's favor and grace again. Uh, and, and he goes through this whole scenario where um, your past doesn't determine your present and future. That, you know, God does not somehow uh, judge based upon the accumulation. Of, of good deeds or bad deeds over a period of time. God judges us based upon our current state before him. If, if, if he tells a righteous man that he'll live and the righteous man abandons the Lord and turns to wickedness, God will punish him. If, if, if the Lord tells a wicked man he'll die and then he repents and turns to justice and righteousness, he will live. You know, we're not locked into what we've done in the past. Nobody is so good that they can leave the Lord and God will still save them. Nobody's so bad that they'll repent and God will still condemn them. Think about that. If you're somebody who's just overwhelmed with feeling hopeless 
Because look at all the terrible things I've done. Look at how, how irresponsible and how wicked and how, you know, um, just, just terrible I've been. I, 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 and, and feeling like there's, there's no way I can change. You know, I mean, I've done so many bad things. How could God ever forgive me now? How could he ever be gracious? You think about, it. are there people in the Bible who remarkably repented and God accepted their repentance? Who can you think of that's a, a, amazing examples of God accepting a bad person who turns back to him? By David, somebody said. Absolutely. Would you accept back an a, a adulterer and, and, you know, just inexcusable situation and then essentially a murderer? I, I bet not too many of us are guilty of murder. You know, at least not physically. Maybe, maybe in a heart. Uh, so David's a great example. Several of you said other things. I can't. I couldn't hear them all. But think about the Apostle Paul, who's been responsible for the death of Christians. I think the two that are most striking to me, one of them I think didn't last, but Ahab. Ahab. Wow. Of all the horrible, despicable people, he's only outdone by his uh, wife and daughter, as far as I'm concerned, in the role of the wicked. You know, Jezebel and Athaliah may have been worse, but Ahab was pathetic. But he repents at the end of uh, 1 Kings 21, and the Lord blesses him. And again, I don't know that that continued for Ahab. That may have been a momentary thing. But I'll tell you the one that just floors me. Who's the worst king there ever was? If it's not Manasseh, it's almost close to Manasseh. And he repented. And, and evidently, really repented and changed. Now, he couldn't bring back to life the innocent people he killed. He couldn't change the hearts of the people and all that. But as far as I can see, God God accepted his repentance and, and, and blessed him. And I can't imagine a Manasseh. 55 years of garbage. I don't know how many years, you know, into that he repented, but I mean, it was at the end of his reign. So maybe 50 years of just a terrible kingship that was horribly destructive to everything righteous. And then he repents and God accepts it. There is no body so bad that if they're willing to repent, God is not willing to receive them. God is going to judge us on the basis of our present situation, not our past performance. That is frightening from the standpoint of the righteous. You know, I mean, maybe it's really true that you have really lived faithfully to the Lord. I think that would be true of several people here. A lot of people here. Thank God. But if you turn away from God, if you fall into temptation and, and abandon the Lord, nothing you've done so far is going to count. So we have to continue being vigilant. Satan hasn't given up on us. And we will continue to be tested. We, we must continue to grow and serve. Uh, but then for those who feel horrible about their past and know they haven't done what's right, there is certainly the offer of grace for those who repent. Thoughts and comments? Um, I know in verse 14 it uh, kind of makes a sign of attitude that I see a lot of nowadays, which is, you know, it says in verse 14, but when I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and he turns from his sin and practices justice and righteousness. It seems like that attitude of we don't do the right thing until we know something bad's going to happen. Um, we don't always just do the right thing. Sometimes we don't. Thing if we just do it because we know something bad's going to come from it. 
But God warns about the bad to motivate us to repent. It's not illegitimate, the repentance, even if it's because we know the punishment that will come. Other questions, comments? Yes, Matt? It's really um, interesting to me in verse 13, when God says, When I say to the righteous, he will surely live, and, so, and he so trusts in his righteousness that he commits iniquity. The advantage of a person who has a bad past and repents, the advantage they have over a person who thinks of themselves as righteous is they're uncomfortable. When we're uncomfortable and we are aware of our sin, it's going to really encourage us to do what's right. But when we trust in our righteousness and get comfortable, that's when he's asking. Good point. Yeah. Right? Something I don't think about enough is how much sin overwhelms and hurts God. Like when he talks about how none of his righteous deeds will be remembered. You know, in my mind I'm almost imagining that like just kind of an emotionless awe thing just kind of erasing righteous deeds. But you just read a lot of passion in this and how God is just very overwhelmed to the point where he can't even see someone the same way anymore at all when they've chosen to sin against him in this way and trust in their own righteousness. And I think oftentimes that's what really hinders me from talking to people about the gospel, because I'm not I'm not really thinking about how someone's condition overwhelms and hurts God, and why I flatter sin and temptation far too much, because I'm focusing so much on myself, and not enough about how this will impact God and hurt him and overwhelm him. Good point. Yeah, this certainly impacts the world. The Lord cares about us and wants to do what's right. Jonathan? How do you reconcile this with Matthew 18, where Jesus is talking about, you know, uh, it'd be woe to them who cause this one of these little children to stumble. You know, like, in my life, you know, the way I live my life might be hypocritical, and people view me as a Christian, but I'm not living the way I should be according to the scriptures, and I might cause somebody to think that's the right way to live as a Christian when it's not, and I cause them to stumble, you know, how do you reconcile that with God forgive me for that, for causing someone else to stumble? It is tragic to cause others to stumble, but that what doesn't keep God from forgiving some wicked person who repents. I assume Manasseh has led a lot of people to stumble, but when he truly repented, God forgave him and accepted him. And he did what he could from there on out to do and promote the right things. There is not an unpardonable sin in the sense of a sin that's so bad, I can't be forgiven if I repent. Now, there are people who are hardened and they won't repent. But if I'll turn back to the Lord, he'll forgive me no matter what. Now, I need to think about my impact on others. I won't be able to necessarily undo that impact. You think there's a lot of parents who turn back to the Lord later in life. But the way they raised their kids was not to serve the Lord, and their children never turned to the Lord, even though they turned back to the Lord sincerely. That's a terrible grief. But it certainly doesn't keep the Lord from accepting those who turn back to Him. I think one thing that can potentially be challenging is, imagine if you were you know, in Babylon, and you're Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego, and you're facing Nebuchadnezzar's wrath and his, um, you know, his uh, ill treatment. It can be really easy to become grudgeful and, you know, vengeful. Um, but I think that when we, but God ultimately, you know, seeks Nebuchadnezzar to repent and to turn back to Him. So I just think there's a lesson there that even 
if I'm facing mistreatment, I have to be thinking beyond just myself. Good point. Good point, yes. One God to save your persecutor. When Stephen prayed for the forgiveness of those who were stoning him, God answered by saving Saul. Devin. I think it's really scary how the the Jews, the Israelites here, had their hearts so hardened where in 17 through 20, after uh, Ezekiel reveals just the graciousness of God of allowing those who had led sinful lives to be able to repent and become righteous. And you look back at, at the things that God is offering, they say, no, that's not, that's not right. That's, that's not fair. It's scary how hard in their hearts have become. I think it's easy for us to feel that way. You know, I think it doesn't seem right that God wouldn't just kind of balance out the good and the bad. You know, how could a whole life of good be destroyed by an end of life of wickedness? How could a whole life of evil, and then God would forgive that because they turned to the Lord at, you know, near the end of their life? doesn't seem right. It is right. It's just our concept of right and wrong that's invalid. But I think we too struggle with that sometimes. Joe? In context of the book, it seems like this is a good chapter to emphasize not about returning to the church or falling away from the church, but to the Lord. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, that's the concern. You know, you may or may not have fallen away from the church, but it's way more important that you fell away from the Lord. You know, and uh, we want you to come back to the Lord, not just to the church. Elizabeth. It almost seems like to me that God is cautioning Ezekiel with this tale. Because, I mean, Ezekiel has dedicated his whole life up to this point of warning the people of if Jerusalem's going to be destru- destroyed, this is our punishment, all of this. And they kept saying, no, 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 we're, we're about to go back. You know, a couple of years and we'll go back. We'll go back to Jerusalem. It'll be okay. And now it's come true. Ezekiel has come true. He's been, um, I guess, uh, his, his prophecy has been verified. What he's been saying has been true. And it almost seems to me like God is saying, okay, remember, if they repent, I will accept them back, even if they've been doing all of these horrible things. And the people who've been believing you, if they turn away from me now and they say, oh, God has forgotten us, he's destroyed Jerusalem, then they're no longer righteous. And I think we can do the same thing in our lives. It's just like, you know, we're, we're warning these people, we are standing in the gap, but yet when they turn back, do we forgive them fully? Okay, good, good point. And I think trying to encourage the people who are demoralized by realizing how bad they've been, that there is a way to repent and be right with God again. I'd like for us to focus in a little bit more now on just the responsibility of being a watchman and uh, sing some songs related to our responsibility to evangelize. John's going to lead us, and so we're going to sing.